The world around us is getting more polarized. As politicians and media outlets and our own families and friend groups move more and more in their own fact bubbles. They have less and less exposure to different opinions and viewpoints. But would it help if they did? Would people be more willing to change their minds, to adjust their beliefs if things were different? And what if we taught everyone about concepts like cognitive dissonance and motivated reasoning? Would we all benefit from knowing that once we have committed to an idea, our minds make it really tough to let go of that idea, even when presented with powerful evidence that we might be wrong? Well, the short answer is we don't know. Uh, if that would help, uh, maybe. It might help public discourse, it might not. It might make individuals more aware of their own shortcomings when it comes to reasoning, or it might not. Now, thankfully, Dr. Alexa Tullett and her lab at the University of Alabama are studying this very thing right now, so we may have a better answer for these questions soon. Until then, we're going to err on the side of caution and tell you all about cognitive dissonance and motivated reasoning on today's episode of Mindful. Welcome to episode two of the spring season of Mindful. My name is Eric Bullman and I'm the communication specialist at the Canadian Psychological Association. We're doing something a little different on this season of Mindful, in as much as you can call what we do a season. Uh, the undergrad students in the History of Psychology class at the University of Calgary, under the instruction of Jim Cresswell, have put together podcasts of their own for their final project of the year. And we're gonna share some of them here. For today's podcast, we, rec we welcome Joyce Singh, Susan Lowry, Madison Fairholm, and Natalie Sebastian. In part one today, we're going to play their podcast, then in part two, we're going to bring in an expert on the subject to speak with the students, uh, Dr. Alexa Tullett from the University of Alabama. So here are Madison, Natalie, Joyce, and Susan with their podcast centered around cognitive dissonance theory and social media. Have you ever been scrolling through social media and thought about why you click on that controversial looking post while skipping over another? Maybe not. In fact, this decision might not be made consciously. You might only be exposed to information that agrees or disagrees with your pre-existing views. We're here today to talk about what might be going on in our mind that makes us stop or scroll. According to a recent survey by Statistics Canada, 44% of respondents have reported spending more time online since the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic. This shows the importance of considering the decisions people make regarding social media exposure. Welcome to our podcast. My name is Susan Flynn-Lowry and I am joined by Madison Fairholm, Natalie Sebastian, and Joyce Singh. We are a group of undergraduate students in the Fall 2020 History of Psychological Thought course at the University of Calgary. Today, we'll be discussing selective exposure as a resurgence of cognitive dissonance theory. Natalie will start us off by introducing the concept of cognitive dissonance theory. Thanks, Susan. So choices in media exposure can create a cognitively dissonant state, and they can also be a reaction to an existing dissonant state. Consonant or consistent and dissonant or inconsistent states are the basis of Leon Festinger's 1957 cognitive dissonance theory, which we will refer to as CDT from now on. 
Fessinger developed this theory to characterize the discomfort experienced by individuals rationalizing personal inconsistencies in their choices and their attempts at reducing this discomfort. Fessinger's simplified explanation of the existence or absence of cognitive dissonance goes like this. X and Y are dissonant if not X follows from Y. For example, being healthy and smoking are dissonant if not being healthy follows from smoking. That's an interesting way of looking at it, Natalie. I think so too. Fesslinger's theory states that dissonance can arise from individual level phenomena such as logical inconsistency, differences in specific versus general opinions, and past experiences. It can also arise from social phenomena such as cultural influences. The smoking example we just used presents a logical inconsistency, so an individual level phenomenon. The discomfort from the conflict between smoking behavior and the acceptance of its negative impact on health creates a dissonant state. So then, Natalie, how do people deal with this uncomfortable dissonant state? The dissonant state certainly creates a need for action. Two studies conducted in the late 1950s discussed that decisions can be either voluntary or involuntary. So voluntary meaning when individuals come to a conclusion based on weighing the pros and cons of different alternatives, and involuntary meaning when social or other influences require specific behaviors. Once a decision is made, the resulting dissonant state needs to be managed. So this tells me the dissonant state is managed by changing your opinion or your behavior. Yeah, exactly. Cognitive dissonance exists when a person faces a choice between two competing cognitive elements. So we found that there are a variety of methods regularly employed to reduce cognitive dissonance, but selective exposure is by far the most common. Joyce will explain this in more detail. Thanks, Susan. Selective exposure explains how individuals consume information. In a 1965 study, selective exposure was shown to include both avoiding dissonant information and seeking out consonant information. Based on our review of the relevant research over the decades, within CDT, selective exposure emerged as the primary method of reducing dissonance in the past due to its effectiveness it has become more commonly used to explain one's exposure to increasing amounts of information and will likely continue to be used in addressing dissonant states in the future, such as in social media. What do you think, Madison? I agree. Social media in society has contributed to increasing cognitive dissonance among its users and has led to a focus on the use of selective exposure as a means of addressing dissonant states. It appears this type of exposure to social media may contribute to political and social unrest due to its effect on polarizing views. This polarization is especially relevant in the context of social media. Hmm. So Natalie, looking specifically at selective exposure, um, can you tell us about what's been seen in the literature? Yeah, so since the inception of CDT, selective exposure seems to be the most researched and has been applied to many different contexts of human behavior. So there are a lot of rich findings but there has been historical variability showing both support and opposition for selective exposure as an effective method of reducing dissonance. So what did the supporting side say, Joyce? A number of articles confirmed that individuals tend to avoid dissonant information and seek out constant information. When given the choice, people actively pursue information that confirms their views. For example, a study on partisan selective exposure in American politics found that voters identifying as liberal sought out liberal media, and voters identifying as conservative consumed conservative media. Think Fox versus CNN, for example. Well, that sounds pretty convincing. 
And there was opposition? Mm-hmm. The supporting research is convincing, but some findings suggest people actually look for information that goes against their views because they want to refute it. Oh, what a contradiction. Yeah, this opposing evidence is less common, though. More often is the case that selective exposure depends on the presence of certain aspects of the individual. One study found that people who own a new car read advertisements for cars of their own make more than others. This effect was not seen, however, in owners of an old car. In another study, people separated into what are called repressors and sensitizers rated 20 paintings on a 10-point scale, from strongly like to strongly dislike. Repressors are defined as people who avoid threatening stimuli, while sensitizers choose to approach it. After being shown two pairs of paintings, again, from the previous selection, and choosing one, participants in the study observed the paintings and the duration of eye gaze was measured. Accordingly, the results showed that repressors looked more at the paintings they rated highly and avoided the pair they did not like. In contrast, sensitizers did not show post-decisional selective exposure, hence the repressors engaged in more selective exposure than the sensitizers. Oh, so what does this mean exactly, Joyce? If you are more of a repressor, you are less likely to go looking for information that goes against your views, causing you to avoid posts on social media that are particularly polarizing, for example. So selective exposure is only present depending on certain nuances of human behavior, and this could explain the inconsistent results in the literature. Okay, it makes more sense. So, so historically, there was both support and opposition for selective exposure. Does this come as a surprise? Mm, not really, no. Yeah, actually, Festinger himself brought up concerns about the measurability of CDT and, by extension, selective exposure in his original study. Yeah, exactly. So one of the issues could be that previous selective exposure reviews have tried to encompass a wide range of topics. It is also still uncertain whether selective exposure represents an underlying psychological tendency. It seems that this mix of support and opposition contribute to the drop in popularity in selective exposure research until its recent reemergence. Oh, what do you mean by reemergence? Well, although the merit of selective exposure has been debated in the past, this framework is becoming increasingly relied upon as a method to solve states of dissonance brought upon by current media. I see. Madison, what do you think may have caused this? Well, as media has evolved into new forms such as the internet and social media, news and information is now readily accessible. As a result, individuals face constant exposure to information, some of which may oppose their pre-existing beliefs. Yeah, for sure. So the framework of selective exposure may be a valuable strategy for dealing with this new form of dissonance. Right, that makes sense. And to expand on that, selective exposure is particularly useful when it comes to mass communications and political media, which can both induce and address dissonant states. Exactly. And these specific forms of media are known to broadcast information and opinions that take a particular side. If these opinions don't align with those previously held by a member of the audience, dissonance can be created, motivating that person to rely on selective exposure. So essentially, people turn to communications that reinforce their beliefs and ignore communications that don't. Right. So is there anything else that plays a role in this behavior? There is, actually. 
A behavior referred to as motivated reasoning seems to work within the context of selective exposure to reinforce this effect. And maybe you can explain what motivated reasoning is. Yeah, totally. Motivated reasoning is when an individual purposely seeks out information that is consistent with their beliefs. They will also find alternative sources to those that broadcast information that is inconsistent with their views. Right. So knowing this, it seems to me that mass media only works to reinforce existing beliefs. It definitely can. And again, think of the examples of Fox and CNN. I'm sure many of us have had instances where we've completely ignored information just because the source that's sharing that information is known for having opinions that are different from our own. That is very true. So earlier you mentioned social media. How does selective exposure work within this context? Yeah, that's a great question. And this is still a fairly new area of research. What we do know is that social media allows users to access infinite amounts of information almost immediately. And because of this, users may be increasingly subjected to dissonance-inducing messages. And selective exposure is used to deal with the dissonance created by these messages? Exactly. A study published just last year found that when an individual on social media is exposed to messages that contradict their pre-existing beliefs, they will rely on selective exposure to solve these feelings. In other words, people will ignore these messages, likely by just scrolling or swiping past. Like Tinder, swipe left if you're not interested. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So would this impact someone's social media algorithm? It seems like it. If you don't interact with something on a social media platform, it won't show up on your feed. So it seems possible that people's social media feeds are created through selective exposure. Wow, that's interesting to think about. I don't know. I actually find it a little bit scary. It can seem like the internet is reading our minds when it might just really be our choices that are affecting things. Yeah, I guess it is an emerging area for research. Yes, and social media has emerged relatively recently, and it opens new opportunities for research and the potential to develop a greater understanding of selective exposure. So where do we think future research is headed? Well, it must be kept in mind that selective exposure is not a universal strategy. We are all different, and there are often nuances in individual responses to information that causes dissonance or discomfort, whether it be a controversial post, news article, or anything else. It's really important that future research takes other strategies into account to develop a more comprehensive model explaining how we respond to distant states. And why is this important? Well, as mentioned earlier, a recent report by Stats Canada indicated that Canadians are spending more time online since the onset of the pandemic. Understanding social media consumption and online behavior can help us to better understand dissonance in the media. The research can also inform strategies to help address potential ignorance that results from blocking out the opinions and views of others that go against our core values, beliefs, and preferences. Okay, well, thanks, Madison. It seems like we've come full circle in talking about the progression of selective exposure as a branch of CDT. Any final thoughts? I can start us off. So the universal experience of cognitive dissonance in human behavior is not a new phenomenon. Individuals holding strong beliefs and opinions generally prefer to ignore contradicting stimuli and resolve the dissonant states rather than taking differing opinions into consideration. 
Yeah, totally. And the majority of research in this area has focused on the strategies used to eliminate dissonance, with one such method being selective exposure. And I'd like to add that in the new social media age, people are turning to selective exposure to resolve cognitive dissonance that occurs due to the multitude of opinions they can instantly access. It seems like research on the implications of selective exposure will likely continue well into the future as we learn more about its impact on social media use, especially during the COVID-19 pandemic. Well, thank you very much for joining us for today's podcast. We've had some great discussions and we hope you enjoyed tuning in. Before we go, we'd like to give a special thanks to our instructor, Dr. James Cresswell, for this opportunity. Our whole team was involved in the making and recording of this script. Our sound editor was Madison, and our music was brought to you by Ben Sound. Thank you, Natalie, Madison, Susan, and Joyce. Now, let's bring in our social psychology expert for part two. Hi, um, I'm Alexa. I'm a social psychologist and I work at um, the University of Alabama. Um, but I also grew up in, in Toronto, which I think is ultimately how I got connected with Eric through um, my high school friend, Jonathan Wilbix. I'm Susan. I am a, uh, an after degree student. I'm getting my second degree in psychology. I have two kids and a husband that take up a lot of time. Oh. Joyce. Hi everyone, it's a pleasure to be here today. Um, I am a fourth year Bachelor of Health Sciences student and I am concentrating in psychology and it was such a great experience to be able to um, learn about the history of psychological thought through this course and also to meet with these um, lovely psych students that are in my group here today. Uh, yeah, I'm Natalie, and I am also a fourth year Bachelor of Arts student at University of Calgary, so I'm majoring in psychology, and yeah, same thing Joyce said, it's a pleasure to be here with everyone. Madison, you're last. Yeah, hi everyone, great to be here. Um, I'm a fourth year psychology student as well, uh, just finishing up as of today, actually, my undergraduate degree, so happy to be here and have this discussion with you. Oh, congratulations. What a big day. Uh, all right, I, I want to start with you guys, the, the students, and just what made you choose this topic uh, for your History of Psychology project? Uh, there were two projects, in fact, that specifically uh, chose uh, selective exposure or uh, something in that area. So I'm wondering if one of you guys can tell me what, what the thought process was behind choosing this one. Um, yeah, I can go through that process there. Um, so we met together as a group and we kind of came up with some topics that we thought would be uh, interesting to look at the history of and to go back um, at least around 40 years to see the how it originated and where it's come as of today. Um, and one of our group members came across uh, cognitive dissonance theory and we thought that it had, it's, we've all heard of it in our intro to psychology courses and it has a lot of um, um, factors to it that we just thought were really interesting and it's it, it managed to kind of meet all of our uh, interests not exactly in one area that we were interested in but each of us kind of had a part of it that uh, we really liked so um, we hit the vault, the ground running with that and uh, started researching and it turned out to be really interesting 
Yeah. And I will say, I will let you guys know, I am not a psychologist in any way. So I have not been trained on this. I'm just super interested in the subject and I, I find it fascinating. And I appreciated your podcast uh, going through the history of it and uh, connecting with modern applications, uh, which is why I ended up reaching out to Dr. Tullett. So uh, Alexa, convince these students to go into a career as a social psychologist. Oh, I absolutely would not do that. <laughs> I mean, I, um, I love my job for sure. Um, but yeah, this is probably not the tangent you wanted me to go on. Um, but I was just talking to a colleague of mine today who's a professor in the history department. And we were both talking about how, um, yeah, how it's hard to get a job, you know, um, which you guys probably know. So I guess my, uh, I wouldn't discourage you from this field, which I love. And I think that, um, that working in academia is, is awesome and I really enjoy it. But I am, um, I don't know, increasingly aware of the the degree of luck that's involved in in getting a job in the field. And it was that was true of me of me too. But. Yeah, and I it seems as though it's getting more and more difficult as time goes on, right? Uh, today versus a decade ago versus twenty years ago, even. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess like I don't think that things are totally. Um, not to be yeah, totally pessimistic, I think more and more people use um, their psychology degrees to go into industry and there are sort of more and more um, professions that rely on the like kinds of research skills and, and specifically like knowledge of so- social psychology that, that you would learn in that kind of program. Um, so, so yeah. Yeah. All right, good. Uh, I'm going to go uh, through each of you guys a little bit because I'm curious to know, and Susan, let's start with you. I'm also going to go left to right on my screen here. Uh, having done this project and being aware of things like motivated reasoning, does that change the way, are you cognizant of it now in your daily life? Does it change the way that you approach, say, a social media conversation or a Thanksgiving dinner with the family conversation? Um. I guess okay, as a, I'm, I'm quite a, a mature student, not in like actual maturity, but in age. <laughs> so I've had a, a lot of experience with just life being cognitively dissonant. <laughs> um, not that everybody else won't have, but uh, I feel like it, I'm quite, you know, an opinionated person and um, it, you know, it, learning about this makes it so difficult to, have any confidence in your beliefs, even if you feel as though you've thought it through, right? Um, and I just trust media and it, like anything so much less, even though I didn't really trust it in the first place, right? Um, you know, I mean, I, I, I certainly was aware of, you know, looking at different uh, media sources to tr- sort of you know, cross-reference whether or not you were really reading something that was just targeted to you or whatever. I feel like it's just, it, and it just explains a little bit better about how, and, and we didn't go into this in our paper, but about, you know, how as humans we're predisposed to, to you know, want to have things the way that they suit us. Right. right. <laughs> so, and I, I'm, I'm mostly interested in like sort of the neurobiology of it. So, that sort of stuff is is really where I I'm curious about it more because I've I've seen now that there are some pieces of 
like there's there's been some um some studies about that i think dr Tullet has done some about i'm trying to remember was it like asymmetry in your frontal cortex or something along those lines i didn't know this before i i looked at your thing <laughs> just in case you're thinking that i mean you probably would have caught that on but I, anyway i barely remember this so. <laughs> <laughs> um yeah so i just but i do find it interesting and I, and I love that there there are answers even if we don't know them but i feel like there are answers and so now you're referencing a study dr tullet did so long ago that she can barely remember having done it and i'm thinking that i'm speaking to you guys so long after you did this project that it's uh sort of trying to bring back all the things that you remember doing while you were in the process and uh so Joyce, I'm wondering uh, if that is a factor for you. Did you have to go back, reread half the material that you did? Or is this something that you're still learning about and still part of your everyday course load? Uh, yeah, so I definitely did go back and read the paper that was um, that went along with this podcast. But I think that we had all at some point heard about cognitive dissonance because uh, we've taken a number of different psych courses in the past and and we've been familiar with some of these topics. But I think that uh, getting a bit of a refresh on the topic was also helpful uh, coming into this. Now, Dr. Tullet, I'm interested now in learning more about uh, the brain and the neurobiology of all this. Uh, is something like uh, motivated reasoning something that happens because of the way our brains are constructed, or does it actually change our brain as we uh, try to process various uh, information from different sources? Well, I'm no longer a neuroscience expert, actually probably never was. Um, so you'll have to take my answer with a grain of salt. I mean, the boring version of my answer is like uh, everything that every aspect of our thought is reflected in something neurological, right? Unless, unless you have sort of like a non-materialistic view of, of our minds um, and every sort of way of thinking about things or thing that we learn changes our brain in some subtle way. Um, so that's kind of a, the boring stance, but we know, I guess, some things that, um, some things about the brain, the way that the brain works that are sort of consistent with the idea of dissonance. So I think there are ways that our brain monitors for consistency. And so I, th I think we know that the anterior cingulate cortex, it plays a role in, in sort of like monitoring our errors, um, but also maybe other forms of inconsistency. Um, so we sort of get this. I, I used to um, do uh, ERP research and one of the ERPs that we looked at is called the error-related negativity. And that's thought to arise from the anterior cingulate cortex and um, happens when we, when we make mistakes. Um, and we used to sort of, in the lab, we used to call that the oh shit response. So like when you make a mistake, you see this like ERP and it reflects your feeling of like, oh no, there's a, there's a mismatch between what I, the correct response and what I did. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think there are ways in which our brain, our brain responds to and notifies us of inconsistencies and maybe like encourages us to resolve them. And then if you think about motivated reasoning, I mean, that's sort of like a, a characteristic that we reasoning in general is something that we associate with, with the like newer phylogenetically newer parts of our brain, right? The, the outer cortex of the brain. And 
Um, you know, sometimes I think probably in overly simplistic terms, we think of our gut reactions to things as things that arise from phylogenetically older parts of our brain, maybe, maybe the lizard brain, if you want to um, sort of put it that way. And then uh, the reasoning aspects coming from um, more from the cortex. And it, when you think about motivated reasoning and in particular, sort of like post hoc justifications for things, we can sort of, you can sort of imagine the um, competition between those two parts of our brain. So um, if we sort of like don't like something on a gut level, or maybe something is like something we've believed for a long time, um, then we use those reasoning resources to then justify um, those beliefs. Um, and some people, this is, I think, somewhat controversial, but some people would argue that actually the more we depend on reasoning or maybe the more like adept we are with reasoning, um, the better we are at sort of deceiving ourselves and, and resolving dissonance. So the more we see ourselves like convincing our, ourselves of the view that we want to hold for whatever reason. So... I, and I'm thinking in terms of maybe the people that you see uh, espousing certain viewpoints on television or in newspaper editorials. I think a lot of the time, and I come from a media background, so Susan, I also distrust some of uh, the way the media does things, right? But uh, I think a lot of people get into those opinion uh, jobs because they think that if they hold, let's say, right-wing opinions, they're going to be have a larger platform, more people will hear them, and it's easier to convince those people. But I think over time, they might actually start to really believe the things they're saying. Is that sort of where you're going with that? Would that be one of the ways that somebody with exceptional reasoning skills can eventually convince themselves more easily than someone else? Um. Yeah, I think so. I mean, our motives for convincing ourselves of um, of certain beliefs can be uh, can vary a lot. Um, but the the kinds of strategies that we use to justify our beliefs often, you know, involve things like selective exposure and selective analysis of information, and um, to a certain degree, maybe like selective memory and things like that. And if you are sort of, um, particularly the selective analysis part, if you're sort of skilled at manipulating ideas and making arguments and rhetoric and, or even like analyzing data, you can create the story that you want, right? So I don't know if you guys are familiar with the idea of p-hacking, but this is like one sort of malicious form of, basically p-hacking is like motivated reasoning, right? Like you have you have a result that you want and, you know, you like analyze your data in you know, 30 different ways until you get that, what you want. And then you like come up with a reason why that was like what you should have predicted all along. Right. right. Um, and, and I've seen, sometimes you see like people, at least when I was in grad school, I remember thinking, so at the time we didn't think of that as p-hacking and it was very common. Um, and some of the people in the department who I thought were, were the brightest were the people who were like, they could like immediately come up with a theoretical explanation for like a three-way interaction, you know? Right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, all right, Natalie, after doing history of psychology for this long and projects like this one, do you feel like your brain is any different? I feel like it's different in the sense I kind of um, 
understand why people have different perspectives and why people are kind of drawn to more information than others and why certain things resonate with people so much. So I think it's definitely, especially doing a project like this, where it's kind of looking like at things where it's like, okay, um, I don't agree with this and I don't know why you do. I think it's kind of helped me to realize why people are so different and where that kind of comes from. Yeah, and does that change the way that you approach uh, conversations, arguments, debates uh, in your regular life? I'm not sure necessarily in the moment because I think I have my biases too, but I think going back and looking at conversations, I can be like, okay, this is why I felt this way and maybe this is why the other person felt this way. And so I can kind of reflect on that more and kind of come up with not necessarily a resolution, but be like, okay, I guess I understand more now. That makes sense. And Dr. Tullet, you were talking about post hoc justifications. And that I think is sort of what Natalie's saying, right? After you've had the conversation, then you can go back and think, oh, okay, that's why that happened. Is, is this something that generally works better in hindsight than in the moment? Um, I, yeah, I would, I would suspect that that is true. I mean, one of the things that I think we repeatedly find is that even when people, even when people know a lot about biases and motivated reasoning and confirmation bias, people still like demonstrate it in the moment. And so if somebody were to tell me like, I'm really unbiased, I don't do motivated reasoning, I would distrust them more than somebody who like, uh, like Natalie, who acknowledges that it's like very hard to combat that in the moment. Um, and usually it takes like some space before you can sort of step back and, and see those processes happening. All right, Madison, this is the day that you are finally, you're completing uh, your degree, which is amazing. Where do you go from here? And is this something that you're going to be pursuing uh, a little further as you continue? You mean, if will I be pursuing looking at um, selective exposure, motivated reasoning and cognition? Or just anything that you took from the history class that you have recently completed? Yeah, well, I think that all that course in particular was really valuable just going forward. I do expect to go into um, just for, further with psychology and um, Dr. Tollett's social psychology, unfortunately now, but <laughs> um, <laughs> I immediately so. regretted being so pessimistic with that. But anyways, I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, it's okay. It doesn't diminish my passion for it, but I'm more aware of the difficulties now. <laughs> um, no, but I think that knowing about the history of psychology and um, where theories come from and where they, uh, how they can impact our lives today and, and what we're doing with them currently um, is just really valuable in, in any, in any um, uh, research that you choose to pursue. And I think that uh, you can kind of look at the past and marry it with the future and just get a better overall perspective of so many different things that I think are, um, will help with future research, getting a more well-rounded view of things. Great. Okay. Now I'm going to let you guys know I'm cheap and I have purchased the free version of Zoom. So this will kick us off uh, in about 15 minutes. So I'm going to open up the last 15 minutes. If any of you guys uh, have any questions on this subject, on social psychology uh, that you'd like to ask Alexa, please. Uh, now is a great time for it. And I will just sit back and not do anything and let you guys talk. Um, well, I did want to ask a question just kind of related to what I was just saying with conducting future research in 
uh, whether it be in um, uh, social psychology or cognitive psychology anywhere. I was just wondering what you think about um, motivated reasoning and how this might affect um, biases in the process of conducting research. If you think that there could be um, some barriers that even researchers have to overcome uh, to that might affect any research that's conducted in psychology. Yeah, absolutely. That's something that I'm really interested in too. So yeah, from, from what I know of the literature looking at things like confirmation bias and motivated reasoning um, among sci uh, scientists and psychologists, um, there doesn't seem to be a lot of uh, immunity to those things that comes from, from the like level of education that we have with those topics. And so, yeah, I think that we clearly see that in, in the way that, in the way that researchers conduct their research and phenomena like p-hacking and things like that. That's, that's something that I've been become more and more interested in. And so in my lab, we do uh, more meta-science work than we used to. Um, so sometimes we're studying psychologists and the way that psychologists do research. Um, and one of the projects that uh, my grad student Alex and I recently worked on, we looked at how psychologists update their beliefs when they get new evidence. So in this case, we looked at evidence from replication projects. So we were curious about whether they update their beliefs as much as they should, which is a complicated question, um, but sort of trying to get at mathematically how, how much the, the replication evidence should shift their beliefs um, and seeing how their actual shifts in beliefs align with that. And then we were also interested in whether there were motivated processes involved in that. So whether, whether people sort of like uh, initial commitment to a finding made them more resistant to changing their beliefs or whether they would sort of strategically devalue the replication results if they really believed in the finding in the first place. And I guess our main findings were that we found that people don't update their beliefs as much as they should, at least according to our analysis. Um, so often these replication studies, uh, at least the ones that we looked at, have gigantic samples. And so the evidence is actually really quite strong, um, especially compared to original studies, which often have small samples. So people change their beliefs, but maybe not as much as they should. And then um, we don't, we didn't find a lot of evidence for motivated reasoning. So it didn't seem to matter much whether people, you know, said they felt invested in the finding or believed very strongly in the finding in the first place. That, that could be because um, psychologists are good at avoiding motivated reasoning, or it could be because um, these are probably not studies that people are super invested in. So they're not like studies where we're like actually, you know, pulling the authors of the original studies who might like have their sort of career invested in that finding. So I guess, I mean, that's a long way of saying that I absolutely think motivated reasoning is a huge, has a huge influence on the way that researchers do their research and respond to the research of others. And that's like something that I think we, there's lots of room to do work on that stuff, I think. So I'm glad you're going into social psychology. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Dr. Tellett, I was wondering, um, so maybe just shifting gears a little bit to more uh, the public in general, one of the implications that came out of our paper and our podcast that we were sort of thinking about was if there would be any value in more public education about this topic, about 
just cognitive dissonance and how people um, sort of make these decisions um, to reduce cognitive dissonance. So just wondering if that would be useful in maybe people being able to take other perspectives or better understand their own personal biases and attitudes going into any given topic? Yeah, that's a great question. So yeah, I feel like I'm, I'm plugging my own work a little bit here, but we were also really interested in that question in my lab. And there's been some previous work that looks at um, different debiasing strategies. So there's like a literature that looks at different different ways specifically of like reducing selective exposure. So um, encouraging people to sort of consider alternative perspectives and look for that information, which seems really particularly relevant. I, I feel maybe particularly in the US, but also maybe in Canada with like sort of the polarization of the media and things like that. And so uh, some of the like most common strategies that people propose are things like just sort of general psychoeducation, like what you described. So teaching people about bias and then hoping that they can then apply it to themselves. Um, and then there's also the strategy of sort of asking people to really deliberately consider the alternative perspectives. And then there's a uh, sort of maybe more indirect strategy of creating a social norm for, for being exposed to alternative views. So basically telling people, let's say, you're talking to people who are sort of more on the left saying, hey, other people who are on the left, they sometimes read news sources that are from the right. So maybe you should do it. Well, actually not even explicitly saying maybe you should do it too, but sort of trying to create a social pressure. And so in our lab, we're doing like a comparison of these different uh, techniques um, as a registered report. So we proposed the study idea to this journal called um, comprehensive results in social psychology, um, and they evaluate the methods and then um, agree to publish the finding no matter what it is. So it's one way to like combat publication bias. Um, so we're comparing those different strategies and I'll be interested to see. So I'm sort of skeptical of the psychoeducation approach, like just teaching people about these concepts hypothetically, because um, I'm skeptical about people's ability to be, maybe sort of like Natalie was describing, like uh, embrace that in the moment, but I don't know. And then, and then, yeah, for the other two, I'm not sure. So, uh, the social norms one might, might, I'm a social psychologist, so I'm sort of biased. And I think that people, a lot of people's behavior comes down to sort of like fitting in with others and trying to like do what other people is going to make other people like them or think highly of them or something like that. So, um, so I don't know the answer yet, but, um, but I think it's an excellent question. Thank you. Yeah, that would be really interesting to learn more about, um, especially coming out of this project. Um, it, it does seem that, at least for me personally, looking into some of, the, some of these things and then um, going and looking at different news sources or media sources, it definitely takes effort to be able to evaluate your own biases. So it's not something that is... Um, necessarily going to come to mind when you're passively looking at information. Sort of on that same vein, you know, when we're talking about public education, and I no, I realize you said you're skeptical of it, and I probably am too. Um, I'm wondering how people's biases against, you know, maybe one academia, but, but in science, you know, how we got this issue about, you know, well, people don't believe in science anymore or whatever, obviously mm -hmm. not everybody. Um, but with things like the replication crisis, 
it sort of fuels that bias to say, well, of course, why would I believe it when they're manipulating their, you know, all that kind of stuff. So, um, so I guess, I don't know if I have a question. I just kind of was thinking that, you know, does it relate to um, motivated reasoning when it comes to, you know, like, I, I feel like, you know, facts are facts, but not a lot of people agree on very many of the facts, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, these questions are, these questions get at like the things that I think about the most. Like, I, lo I love these questions so much. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think about and talk about the replication crisis quite a bit and sometimes do work that's related to it. And I'm also really interested in sort of trust in science and the connection between those two things is really um, interesting to me. So, yeah, I mean, ultimately my opinion is, you know, we need to be like transparent about the flaws in, in our field um, in order to become a more trustworthy field. So we can't just sort of like demand trust without earning the trust. But I have a lot of complicated views about it. So um, for instance, so Naomi Oreskes has um, written a few books and about trust in science. And, and she has a, a TED talk that I really like. And she talks about the danger of fostering distrust in science. Um, so she talks about how, for instance, tobacco companies and uh, and like energy companies and things like that will basically try to convince the public that they can't trust science so that they can get away with, you know, things that are harming the environment or selling cigarettes or things like that. And she also discusses, not in her TED talk, but in, in one of her books about uh, how uh, Trump sort of used doubt as a tool um, to, to basically undermine um, science and then, you know, sort of like make room for other forms of, I guess, influencing people's beliefs and people's views. So I also am very, I'm concerned about distrust in, in science. Um, and so I think that it is really important for, um, for scientific fields to earn the public's trust. I have one student who's really interested in the impact of uh, the way that people teach about the replication crisis. Um, so she wants to do a project where she examines whether teaching about the replication crisis in different ways can influence students' trust in the field and also students' um, what she calls epistemic dependence. So the, the level which they are dependent on um, their instructors and also maybe experts more generally in, in gaining knowledge about the field. And in her view, there's some sort of like sweet spot with epistemic dependence, like some balance of trusting experts, which we all have to do sometimes. We're not experts in everything, obviously, um, and being able to think critically about those things. And so her theory is sort of if you if you teach about it in the right way, you can foster um, both critical thinking and not just like this default reliance on experts, but not completely undermine people's um, trust in experts. So you said you you like you were like I'm not sure if this is a question. I'm not sure if that's an answer, but those are some of my thoughts on on those topics. Thank you. Um, so I guess kind of building on that thread is this idea of sort of trust in science and motivated reasoning and all that, all that, does that kind of play into all the debates and controversies 
surrounding different aspects of the COVID-19 pandemic, like vaccinations and masks and all of that stuff? Yeah, I think, I think so. I mean, something that I hear people talk about a lot when they talk about trust in science is this idea that the CDC initially misled uh, the public by, by telling us that we didn't need to wear masks. Um, and people are more or less, there's various degrees of cynicism about that. And I think probably we've all heard the possibility or, or maybe this is like something that has been admitted or established that like this was a consequence of there not being enough PPE. And so, so the CDC was like, we'll just like tell people that they don't need it for now or something like that. I guess that's the most cynical view. Um, I mean, things like that, I think are, it's really important to avoid things like that. Um, but there are other ways in which I think that COVID-19 has been really interesting in terms of maybe shaping expectations for what, what science should look like. Um, so I also hear discussions about like, okay, well, the fact that scientists are changing and revising their advice as we go through this pandemic is not a sign that science is bullshit and untrustworthy, but that, you know, this is the process of science and that it's, you know, evolving and we are going to be revising the advice as we get new evidence. And for me personally, I mean, the, the development of vaccines has like, I tend to be on the very skeptical side of things um, when it comes to trust in science, even though I, I believe in science at a, um, at a conceptual level very strongly, but it just blows my mind that, that these scientists were able to come up with these vaccines and that they're like going to save people's lives, like many, like thousands and thousands of lives. Yeah. It really impresses me. And yeah, I'm going off on a bit of a tangent here, but something that's been really cool about that is sort of like the way that um, science has been more open and when it comes to research on COVID than we're sort of typically used to. So people have been doing a lot of data sharing um, and crowdsourcing for these kinds of problems. And I think, I mean, that really excites me about the directions in which, which science is going. I see that we have less than a minute left, so maybe I should stop talking. <laughs> We do, and I don't want to have one of those uh, moments where it's super rude and it cuts everybody off in the middle of a sentence. So I'm going to say thank you so much to all of you guys right Thank you so much to Dr. Tullett and to Susan, Joyce, Natalie, and Madison for being here today. Mindful is written, hosted, produced, and edited by me, Eric Pullman, and today was co-hosted by the History of Psychology students at the University of Calgary. Susan Lowry, Madison Fairholm, Natalie Sebastian, and Joyce Singh. Thank you to Jim Cresswell for creating this assignment for his students and to those students for doing such an excellent job. The theme music for Mindful is Avenues by David Taylor.